millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Na mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from Radio New Zealand National. And now on Our Changing World, bending light to search for planets. Thanks to Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, we know that gravity bends light. And that is something astronomers have used as a tool in their search for planets that orbit stars outside of our own solar system. Nick Rattenbury is an astrophysicist at the University of Auckland, and he says New Zealand has made a major contribution to this quest to find extrasolar planets. The tally now stands at nearly 2,000 such planets, but Nick tells me he can still remember when the first one was discovered back in 1994. I was in my undergraduate years at Auckland University, and it was incredible. This was a, a change from not knowing about any other planets in the, the universe or our galaxy uh, beyond those in our own solar system. So now we now know of other planets. That was a, a seismic shift, if you like, a, a, a huge change in thinking. And we're now talking about thousands of extrasolar planets. We're getting planets. close to about 2,000 planets known. All going around stars that are similar to our sun? No. Um, in most cases, the planets that we know of are going around normal what we call main sequence stars, stars which are going through their ordinary passage through their evolution, but they vary. Um, some planets are going around stars which are much, much smaller and cooler than our own sun, for instance. So those planets will be um, usually somewhat cooler than uh, our own Earth. From a layperson's perspective, the search for extrasolar planets seems to be a quest to find Earth-like planets. With exactly. The view of, you know, can we find something that would actually allow for life? That's, that's the, that's Is it your question. motivation as well? I think so, yes. I mean, we want to find planets. We want to find Earth 2.0. We want to find another Earth out there just to convince ourselves that this is not the only planet on which there are conditions sufficient for harboring life like us, for instance. We want to know whether Earth is, in fact, unique or if there are millions of other Earths out there in the galaxy. So, yes, underneath all of this, there is that desire to know, are there aliens? Is there life out there? <laughs> are we it? Or is there something else? And the first step along that path is answering the question, well, we know that life can exist on a planet like our own Earth, so let's go find some other Earths. Light has played a, a role in this search or in the methods that we use to search for other planets. Can you talk me through the, the method you've been involved with, the microlensing, how that works and how successful it's been? Certainly. Gravity has a, a remarkable effect. It can bend light. It can change the path of light. And Einstein's general theory of relativity describes how this works. And so we can think of a massive object like a star bending the light coming from behind it. And this has a remarkable property. It acts very much like an optical lens, like a magnifying glass. Now, you and your listeners may have seen images on the internet taken by things like the Hubble Space Telescope of objects in the sky distended into strange arcs or even whole circles and this is an example of this effect at work called gravitational lensing. Here in those images that you can see these strange distended arcs uh, around a central point are most likely to be of a background galaxy, the light coming from a distant galaxy being bent by the gravitational field 
of a foreground object, usually another galaxy or, or a cluster of galaxies. And that foreground object bends the light from that background galaxy like a lens, creating these distorted, strange, arc-like images. So that's the concept of gravitational lensing. We have the same kind of effect happening in our own galaxy. So instead of a galaxy producing that gravitational field to bend the light, in our own galaxy we have stars. All the stars in our galaxy, including our own, are moving around the centre of our galaxy. Everything is in motion. And so it is that, by chance, two stars, a background star, a very distant star, and another star, a foreground star, and us here on Earth, all manage to move so that they align almost exactly. And when that happens, the light from the background star gets lensed by the gravitational field of the foreground object. Now the chances of this happening are very, very small. The chances are about one in a million. And that background star doesn't get split up into individual images, like the example I gave of that gravitational lensing example of galaxies I gave before. What we see instead is the light from that background star appear to get brighter and fainter as the foreground object and us all neatly line up and then unalign again over time. That's what we're looking for. It's as if you take a magnifying glass and you pass it between a distant source of light, let's say a, a street light, and you pass that magnifying glass between your eye and that background source of light until they almost line up exactly. What you see is the background light get brighter as you line up everything perfectly and then it gets fainter again as you move the lens out of alignment. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for that telltale signal of a star suddenly and gradually getting brighter, apparently brighter. And we're looking for this, and we think that that is a gravitational microlensing event. And where's the planet in that? Right, this is where it gets interesting. If that foreground object is just a single object, like a star, then the way the light appears to get brighter and fainter is very smooth, and it's very predictable, and it's symmetric. If, on the other hand, that foreground object is, let's say, comprised of more than one object, maybe it's two stars, a binary star system, or a star and a planet, or maybe even two stars and a planet, or maybe even a star and two planets, then that's when things get very interesting, because the apparent brightening and fading of that background star, as everything comes into alignment and moves out of alignment again, is no longer smooth and symmetric. We see glitches. We see extra little signals. And those extra little signals may be due to a planet going around a star in that foreground lens system. Now, a few years ago, I was at Mount John Observatory at Lake Tekapo, and it, it's one of the telescopes there that was used for this purpose, the MOA project. Is that, from a New Zealand perspective, the main place and the main telescope? Yes, indeed. Like I mentioned before, the chances of this chance alignment of a background star and a foreground object lining up exactly is one in a million. It's very, very rare indeed. In fact, Einstein himself said that you know the chances of this happening are so remote as, as to say we'll never see this. But what Einstein didn't uh, conceive or what he couldn't, uh, couldn't think of at that time was the power of modern computers and the, the technological advances that allow us to have large CCD cameras allowing us to monitor millions of stars night after night simultaneously. And of course, you know, if, if your chances are one in a million of seeing something, then what do you do? Well, you observe a million things <laughs> at the <more>. same time, <laughs> for the, looking for those rare chance alignments. Now, the MOA telescope, the Microlensing Observations in Astronomy Telescope, down in uh, Mount John, Lake Tekapo, uh, does exactly that. It is one of the telescopes, um, 
in the world, which is dedicated to observing the same patch of sky, the same stars, night after night after night, looking for those telltale signals of gravitational microlensing. There are other groups around the world which are doing this. There's a, a US and Polish group called OGLE, which observed from Chile, and there is, we are now joined by a Korean group which have three telescopes spaced around the world. But the OGLE and the MOA collaborations, those are the teams which have been doing this the longest. There are other people uh, in New Zealand which have been contributing to detecting planets using this technique because when the survey groups, that's the groups like MOA and OGLE, who spend their time looking at the same stars night after night, looking for those telltale signals. When we find one, we tell the world. When we see something that looks like it's going to do something other than just be a single star causing the lensing, that it could be a star in a planet, for instance, we tell everybody. And folk around the world turn their own telescopes to, to the point, to that position, and take their own observations. And people around the world collaborate, share the data, because it's a one in a million chance, and it doesn't happen again. We've got one shot at getting the data. So, for instance, the groups like MOA, uh, who observed down on Mount John, if it suddenly gets cloudy just when things get interesting, well, we have a problem. However, if we disseminate the information, we tell people about what's happening, other people, other telescopes, point their telescopes towards the event and take their own data. And there's a couple of people in New Zealand I'd like to mention who've done this very successfully in Auckland. One is Dr. Grant Christie at Auckland Stardome. He observes these events when uh, an interesting event occurs. He points his telescopes and collects data and also Jenny McCormick from Farm Cove Observatory in Pakaringa. She observes from essentially a backyard observatory with her telescope. Both of them have contributed to discovering extrasolar planets through gravitational microlensing. How many of those nearly 2,000 have been discovered by this method? Is that uh, the most significant way of detecting them? No, the most successful way to date has been using uh, the space telescope called Kepler, and that uses a completely different technique. Microlensing has found about 41 planets um, to date, of those, of those 2,000. However, what's interesting about the microlensing planets is that they occupy a space around their host star which is, well, it's in a region which is not easily accessed by the other techniques like, like Kepler. The microlensing planets tend to orbit further out from their host star, the star that they're going around, than the planets found by, for instance, the Kepler Space Telescope. What that means is that we are filling in the gaps in our knowledge about how planets form around stars. This is important because we're not entirely sure how planets form around stars. There are a couple of competing theories. And the more we know about planets in, in their planetary systems of various types at various distances around their host stars, the better we shall be able to understand and distinguish between the predictions of the theories that we're getting. Is either of those methods more likely to detect Earth-like planets yes. in terms of you know, being in the right position around their star? That's right. Uh, the Kepler Space Telescope, which detects transit planets or trans by the transit technique, is more likely to discover Earth 2 at the moment. And this is because Kepler is able to point to particular stars of its own choosing to look for um, planets going around the, those stars. Microlensing, we just have to take whatever comes along because we can't make the stars align up exactly. We don't know which star is going to be uh, affected by a microlensing event. So that means that the lenses which act as gravitational lenses are going to be the most common stars in the galaxy, just as a matter of law of averages, if you like. And the most common star in our galaxy happens to be red dwarfs, small, cool stars. And because they're small and cool, and because microlensing tends to find planets further out from the host star, let's say two astronomical units away from its host star. So that's twice the distance that Earth orbits the sun. So what we tend to find are planets orbiting a cool star further out than Earth orbits around 
its own sun. So therefore, the planets that we find are cooler, far too cool to allow liquid water. That's important because we think that liquid water is a necessary component for allowing complex life on a planet. At least life as we know it. <laughs> exactly, life as we know. I mean, this is this is always a, a a point I bring up in the lectures I give at university when we're talking about looking for life. We need to tease out that question a bit. Are we talking about life like us, or, or are we happy with bacteria or viruses? You know, what do we mean by life? What what will be most exciting? Now, let me talk a little bit about your own involvement in this microlensing method in the discovery of extrasolar planets. You mentioned before it requires a lot of computer power just simply because you spend a lot of time scanning vast areas of space. Is it at all detectable, the changes in the light signal, by the human eye, or is all of it thanks to computer power? What happens is at, at the telescope, uh, or actually at the computer terminal uh, guiding the telescope and receiving the data, there is an observer, and the observer is sitting watching the data coming in in real time off the telescope. It gets recorded by the telescope, it gets converted to a digital file, that, that digital file, that image of the sky gets analysed by sophisticated software um, designed here in New Zealand by um, Professor Ian Bond at Massey University, by the way. In real time, we see the data coming in off the telescope for each individual star, and we have sophisticated algorithms which process that and then present to the observer, um, dear human, this looks like something interesting, you might want to tell people about it. And so the, the observer at the telescope will look at the data coming in and saying, yes, yes, that does look to be anomalous. That does look to be strange. This could be the start of one of those glitches which could be owing to a planet going around a star in this microlensing event. And when that happens, emails get sent around. Follow-up observers like the ones I mentioned, Grant and Jenny, get told about it, and they train their telescopes on the event to see if they can capture their own data as well. I don't look at the image data myself. What I get is the... the the refined data. I get what they call the light curve. I get the data showing how each background star is appearing to get brighter over time owing to this gravitational effect. And I try and explain the little glitches that I see in the data with planetary models. So I say, okay, um, instead of the foreground object being just a single object, what happens when I put a second object, a planet, in that system? Now, can I explain the data with what kind of planet, how far away is it orbiting its host star, how big is it, its mass. And that's what I do. I try and make uh, a model which explains the data that we see, and by this means uh, we discover planets. Have you had any of those extrasolar planets named after you by any chance? Sadly not. No, that's not how we do things. Uh, unfortunately, the planets get named after the event uh, number, so they go through sequentially throughout the year, starting at number one for 2015, um, all the way down to, say, number 2000 at the end of the season. And uh, the the group which alerted the event to the community first gets to put its collaboration name on it. So you'll see planets with a number like uh, MOA-2015-BLG-013. hyphen 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 lb Very long and tedious and cumbersome uh, <laughs> naming system. So we don't actually have the opportunity to name the planets ourselves. However, however... The International Astronomical Union has started a process by which members of the public can nominate names for planets which have been discovered. And a number of those planets which have been offered as candidates for being naming are microlensing planets. So I urge any listener who is interested in taking part in this process to check out that uh, naming a process by the International Astronomical Union. 
And that was Nick Rattenbury, an astrophysicist at the University of Auckland. And Nick is also one of the speakers in the Royal Society of New Zealand's Luminaries Lecture Series, which marks the Year of Light. You can find out more about Nick's lecture and the series on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.